I'm Brian McPherson, and this is the Athena Health Podcast. We're producing this podcast to help clinicians and staff better utilize Athena One so that Athena One can best support your patient care. Being part of the Athena Health Network means having access to data from countless sources across the healthcare ecosystem, from providers on the other side of the country to the payers who administer value-based care programs. That's what we broadly refer to as interoperability. But all of that data isn't worth anything if it's not presented in an EHR in such a way that busy clinicians can act on it at the moment of care, driving better patient outcomes. We've got teams actively working on ways to better present that data to clinicians in Athena One, all while keeping an eye on the federal regulations that govern the flow of data across the healthcare ecosystem. That's one of the ways we're curing complexity to simplify the practice of care. I'm joined now by Michael Palantoni, a vice president overseeing the teams who work on all aspects of the Athena One platform and the data flowing into it and out of it. Michael, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Let's start with the basics. When we talk about interoperability, what are we talking about? Interoperability is is really the ability to access, use, and um, manage the information around patient care, uh, and populations from other sources outside of those, you know, in the walls in your practice. And what typically uh, has been referred to in industry is that this data resides in other databases. So your practice might have uh, data about a subset of your patient's care, but as they go to visit hospitals or an urgent care center or a lab, the need to access that data to make effective decisions, to manage the course of that care, to follow up on treatment, closing uh, the loop, as it's called, on things like uh, consult orders or other situations like that, is really in this this broader domain of, of interoperability. And historically, we've seen interoperability really been talked about as a bits and bytes and what's the standard and how does it work in the stack. Uh, and, and those things are important and they're really critical uh, to do interoperability well. But just as if not more important from our point of view is the interoperability of the experiences uh, inside of Athena and other EHRs, meaning that not only is that data flowing, but it's usable, it's relevant, it's actionable, and it's not clogging up EHR. And there's there's a lot of work we need to do and, and the broader institute needs to continue to do, not just have the data flow, which was a challenge, say, 10 years ago, um, but really be truly usable uh, in the EHR. So when you talk to clinicians about how they want to use that data, how they want to see it, and like you said, not clog up the EHR, sort of what, what are the themes that you're hearing about? Yeah, I, I think the big things we talk about with clients are, are, are threefold. One is um, that first part that you just mentioned, that there's this ton of data coming in, whether it's a fax, an interface message, documents coming from HIEs or our national sharing networks or other sources of just how do we better manage that? How do we clean that up so physicians and care teams don't have to hunt and click and look through everything or don't know if they have it or not? What's the transparency of that? Um, and, and vice versa, when we send data out, is it being effectively received by their other care team members who you interact with um, and who you know you might know personally and, and are part of that broader ecosystem? And, and so there's a lot of mechanics there of, 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 of what we can do to continue and improve upon that beyond just access and connection. The second thing we hear a lot about is the role of interoperability in value-based care. Value-based care, by definition, requires the ability to have a more 360 view of the patient, to have a better sense of how is this patient being taken care of holistically, what's the value and risk of that patient's care, and in making uh, decisions based in that context, not just in the operational workflow of a given practice. And to that, we see a lot of very specific needs, particularly around transitions of care, about the availability of risk information around that patient, about the availability of uh, follow-up information and events that necessitate uh, certain care actions or follow-up, uh, of course, of that patient's 
uh, care. Now, what's really interesting about that is that's information that needs to be accessed, not just kind of in the encounter and in, in when you're seeing the patient in front of you, but how are you getting those signals across more of a panel view of your entire patient panel and then being prompted, whether it's you know directly the provider or it's the care team member, say across that panel, I kind of have good telemetry. I've got a good radar of what patients need action when, and then I can bring them in uh, for further. And the last um, I'd argue is actually uh, not, not, I think traditionally thought of as interrupt, but is really with the patient, um, and, and the information that patients are providing. And I don't mean, you know, the wearables and, and remote patient monitoring. Yes, that's a piece of it, but, uh, there's a wide number of interactions now, whether it's screeners for depression or fall risk, whether it's uh, history and narrative that can be used for various other technologies to pick up on what's happening, whether it's telehealth data coming in from the patient, whether it's messaging to and from outside of encounters, um, whether it's requests for patient information. So I, I think this third pillar is equally as important of the interoperability between the patient and the provider and all these different modes in a way that's not requiring the patient to be always on, always following up an email and being completely subject to these exchanges. Um, but really being able to, to interact with the patient at the right time the right way as well. So one important service I know that we offer in support of the goal of getting the right data at the right time is patient record sharing. Can you walk me through sort of how that process works when a patient goes ahead and sets up an appointment with their provider? Sure. So patient record sharing, or you'll probably hear it, uh, it referred to as PRS in some cases, uh, is our ability to connect to uh, and bring in data from these large national sharing networks. And uh, there's a couple of them that we connect to within uh, what we call patient record sharing. You may, you may have heard of these names. One is Commonwealth, the other is Care Quality. And these are networks that uh, create the ability to communicate um, and transmit information from all sorts of sites of care, hospitals, other practices, residential facilities, um, and on a bi-directional basis. And, and so what happens in Athena when a patient uh, is approaching their appointment at different points in time in that workflow, is we reach out to these networks and say, what information, what records do you have uh, about this patient? And there's different uh, uh, mechanics between those the different networks. And what we do internally inside of Athena is map the right mechanic to the right information sharing network um, and then bring that data in. And so that data resides in the um, document tab of the uh, chart. And we're refreshing that ahead of the encounter um, and also during the encounter, there are mechanics where you can scroll to, to have that refresh, um, to pull that data in and now say on a national basis, what do we know about this patient? But at the same time, uh, we're allowing others to do that to us. So if one of your patients is moving from a, or you know, if an Athena practice is seeing a patient as they're being seen elsewhere, let's say from a practice into a, a health system, say for, uh, you know, they, they were in the care of an of a OB-GYN on a, on a prenatal basis, and now they're actually going to the hospital for delivery. The, episode, uh, the OB episode data can, can now be consumed and viewed by that hospital, say in a, a, a Care Everywhere, an Epic, or the equivalent other uh, chart viewing tools in those other systems. So it's a bi-directional system. We're making lots of queries nationally. We're doing this millions of times a day. And uh, in total right now, we do this about 2 billion times a year as this kind of massive behind the scenes network that's powering that data right into the patient's chart um, that you can look at the patient's timeline 
to see what happened when or in a, on a by document. So if you're looking for a consult letter versus a, a history document, for example. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the examples, the OB episode, for example, the timeline. Sort of what kinds of data and documentation are people able to see that are flowing into the encounter on the chart? Broadly, whatever we can find uh, across a number of different clinical document types. And those range from consult follow-ups to longitudinal care records to encounter summaries. It's to some degree subject to what's available from these other systems. So there's a little bit of this kind of take what you can get uh, thing. And each source system has slightly different parameters of what they send back, how they receive requests. So in uh, Athena, you might see a bunch of different types of documents that we're pulling in. So it's pretty broad-based. And what's also happening is there are more and different types of entities being added to these networks. So for example, some of the labs are starting to participate. Um, some of the ancillary environments around non-encounter-based care for, say, PT care management, some of those systems are starting to participate. So not only do we have this data today, but the type and diversity of it is also increasing in terms of what can be available pulling into the chart. So how can customers ensure they're getting the data from the sources that they want to make sure that they're getting the data from where their patients are being seen in other places? Yeah. One of the tricky things with these national sharing networks is, you know, you might have patients who are snowbirds or you might have a care that's not uh, terribly local, maybe two, 300 miles away, but you always refer to your more complex cases too. And while we do our best to detect those patterns across the network and expand the geofences we use to pull in that data and where we're querying how it is, oftentimes it's a little bit of a needle on a haystack problem on our side. So what we're doing is allowing uh, practices to use this include list so that you can specify in your practice where you want us to be pulling from on your behalf. Um, and we think this is a helpful tool for practices who, you know, if, if you always send care to a certain setting, you always want us to check, did my patient have records at, at such and such a location, that can be configured inside of AthenaNet. At the same time, we're also continuing to add to our ability to do this in more sophisticated ways, more targeted ways, looking at different signals and events we can process, say, oh, if we know the patient was there, let's always look back there. And one of the issues with these data sharing networks when they were initially built is they were relatively blunt instruments always search in a certain mile radius of where that practices, things that don't really make sense. I mean, there are snowbirds a large percent of the population in all sorts of care patterns and rural centers, you know, moving patients hundreds of miles to get care elsewhere. So what we've been doing along the way is continuously improving and testing some of these national sharing networks of where are they locating patients? How can we get better access? How can we better filter and sort for that information? So this is also a living, breathing improvement that we're doing to this system that we're excited about. And, and hopefully some of these tools like the include list can also help better target the information being received by practices. So it sounds like we're able to pull in a lot of data from a lot of places. And I imagine there are some clinicians listening now that, you know, A, have seen that in different places and B, might be concerned that too much data is just as bad as not enough data because too much data is not consumable, especially given the amount of time they may have to prepare for encounters. What are we doing to sort of ensure that clinicians are able to get the most relevant data for the patient that they're seeing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, 10 years ago, the challenge in the industry is, can we get the data moving? Data access, data access, data access. And, you know, there's silos in data and all this kind of thing. Today is a very different story. The data is very available. There's all sorts of HOEs and data sharing networks and APIs and places to go. I think the question that you rightly pose that we're focused on right now, Brian, is how do we make this data not overwhelming, not onerous in some cases, you know, concerning that, oh, I have to be accountable for all this data. Jeez, you know, it's impossible to scan through. But how do we attack that? And what we've done in an alpha basis on a couple of clients that we're in the process of working on is this process we call chart sync, 
where we're taking all the discrete data from these sources, you know, the specific allergy, the specific analyte, uh, the specific problem from the problem list, and we're bumping it up against the data existing in the chart to say, hey, do is this something new? If so, what are the differences? And then allowing for a in natively in the chart in each section as if it were already in your chart, the ability to view that um, as part of the general workflow. So it's not part of this separate thing. You don't have to go hunting and pecking for it. It's just there. Now, what we've seen is there's a couple of different preferences for this. You know, some practices really want to do this tightly with a couple of health assessors that it's basically the same data, always stressed into my chart. And some say, now, geez, I, you know, I never work with this group. I always want to just keep this a little bit outside. So the other thing we're working on as we do this is the ability to determine what data to trust automatically. So you get that automation benefit, whereas some you might say, I, I don't trust this. I want to actually kind of look at this stuff. And so it's, 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 it's three things. One is bringing the data in discreetly, putting it in the workflow. There's not a hunt and uh, search and peck, and then automatically reconciling it where you trust and we think that creates this really interesting ability to make more and more use of this data without taking on more and more work to filter and scan, particularly as these national data sharing networks get more prominent. And that the edge of our work is actually in the AI space. And what we're experimenting with right now is the ability to have uh, large language models summarize some of this data in prose. And so we can get to a point where perhaps some of these models can tell us, what's the summary of this chart? You know, if there's a big encounter document, I just want to know a summary of the note that was embedded in it. Uh, can we use some AI approaches to do that? And so that's the fourth thing that's a little bit further out in the roadmap. We've got a couple of experiments in production right now around it, but we're learning more. The prior work we call ChartSync is, is already being used by some of our clients. We're going to continue to roll that out over the course of this year. We're pretty excited about it. We think it really achieves this idea of truly one chart prioritized by the practice's sense of trust, the, the clinician's sense of trust. And with this end result of really creating this one view of the patients, one view of, of, of the chart from all these sources. So we're excited about that. And then the AI piece will be something we'll pursue um, in, in the following period of time as well. That sounds like that could be particularly useful in case of the snowbirds that you talked about, those people that have getting care. Like it's almost like a, like what I did during my summer vacation document that could be brought into the chart. Yeah, it's, it's you know, snowbirds, even even really locally of, of, you know, this difference between a proceduralist practicing in a health system or a hospital nearby than being seen really managed on a relationship basis in the ambulatory setting in Athena. You know, that data is, is really one episode of care. So can we merge it as one? So we think there's a ton of applicability here across a range of, of uh, use cases. And once again, the key insight is that, that it's not a data problem anymore. It's really a usability design problem. Uh, a lot of these systems are, are dramatically improved over the last 10 years of what they can do under the hood as technology, but we really need the sophistication of our design and experience. And that's where we're really putting our designers, our user researchers on our side to get this right, um, because that's, that's really where it needs to be improved. So when we see clinicians who are having a lot of success leveraging this data for success and value-based care programs, and I know we have a lot of clinicians who would like to be optimally leveraging their data to succeed in value-based care programs, sort of what are what are we seeing the successful ones do? What advice do we give those who are looking for a little help figuring out how they can use all this data that's available to them? Yeah. So today, you know, the ones who are doing value-based care really well with this data are investing in data teams and processes to not just manage the data and analyze it, but really prompt workflows and cues and actions for the providers. That's really been the case for the past 10 years. You know, our observation around that is those are what leading value-based care organizations do. 
But for smaller groups, independent groups, that's a huge amount of overhead that doesn't scale down. And so what we have found is that our you know, role as an EHR is to be able to start doing those things on our client's behalf. So the work of managing that data, getting prompts out of that data, connecting to the right data sources, which is, you know, the work of value-based care. It's kind of the new, we used to talk about reducing, you know, not used to, we still talk about the uh, reducing the work of healthcare. This is the new work of, of healthcare admin, is value-based care admin. And what we're doing is working towards minimizing that work so the smallest group with the least amount of resources can participate in value-based care as successfully as the largest by taking on the data management, connecting the data, the prompts, the actions, the computations required to do this well. So it's just part of the encounter. And we really encapsulate this idea of we think about as we call it moments of care, of just making the data work in the moment of care uh, at the right place at the right time. We've talked a lot about the encounter. We've talked about sort of you know, how information is flowing from different, um, different health systems to ambulatory settings and that sort of thing. Um, and you alluded a little bit to this when you talked about claims, but I know data from payers factors in here too as well in the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, where does data from payers factor into all this? Uh, I mean, this is really that premise is ultimately the payers are keeping score um, in most of these arrangements. And if it's not the payer, it's the payer-like entity called, you know, the risk-bearing entity an ACO or, 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 or you know, fill in your equivalent. And what, what we're finding is that there's a ton of infrastructure out there in Belt. We have our own products to do this. We have a population health product that does this very thing is we go and try and simulate the same thing that those keeping score are, are using to keep score. So we're simulating what does the payer see in risk? What does the payer see in quality? And hoping that as we do our work and submit that, it matches what the risk-bearing entity or the payer has on, on record and then that aligns the programs and performance and incentives and value-based care. Um, one observation is that we had, you know, a, a couple of years ago now is, might there be a better way to do that? Um, instead of trying to simulate and recreate what the, what the, you know, the people keeping score, so to speak, have, why not just ask them directly? Why not just say, hey, what care gaps do you have on record for this patient? Uh, what's your sense of the risk of this patient? and just bring those discrete actions into the moment of care and make the job, not necessarily trying to simulate all that infrastructure, but make the job, how do you integrate that point of view of what's required to perform in value-based care well, native to the EHR, native to the workflow in that moment of care. So it's not like it's some foreign process, you know, going back to that, the prior part of the conversation, there's just a ton of stuff that's been built outside that needs to be integrated in. And so our idea here was let's essentially open up, reverse, inverse the role of EHR and the payer and say, let's, let's almost change all, all assumptions and say, let's go to the payer to source the information directly, bring that in, show it natively in the workflow so it appears as if it's part of the chart, you wouldn't even know it. A lot of the feedback we get in this workflow is didn't even realize it's where we're sourcing it from and take actions directly. And, and we think this is critical, not just because it's, a more efficient way of doing it. It's a more scalable way of doing this. We can do this across uh, members, across national scale, because we're connecting to these platforms. But we can do it in a way where it's a service in our workflow directly for the provider, even at the small group level. So there's no infrastructure investment that the individual provider, small group has to invest in. We're doing this as part of this broader ecosystem we're creating, and it doesn't require special effort by the provider. So that's, I think, the interesting thing about where payers are coming in in value-based care. 
it's a really different relationship than historically in a traditional fee-for-service world about the role of payer and provider. The communication channels are deeper. The data access is deeper. The collaboration in, in bi-directional um, communication is a lot deeper. And so that's what we're really trying to take advantage of as opposed to having groups kind of arm and simulate what might be going at the pair. Let's just build great two-way relationships. And the nice thing is in most value-based care arrangements, the incentives and communications and alignment are, are much, much more stronger and make this much easier to do than in traditional uh, fee-for-service models. And I was going to ask, but you may have kind of answered it, that sort of how clinicians should leverage this data that they're seeing from providers if it's different than they would leverage data that they're seeing from, say, the neighborhood hospital when the patient comes back into the ambulatory setting. And it sounds like it's kind of just all there to be acted upon in its own way. Yeah, exactly. It's one experience inside of AthenaNet. Um, some of our clients and users might see it on the diagnosis tab or on the quality tab. Um, you'll, you'll see, if you know really specifically, the sources of that will show you what pair um, it's from. And the, the whole premise is not necessarily to distinguish it between any given source, that all pairs are consistent. It's not a special workflow for payer one versus payer two versus program Y versus program C. And instead, it's a consistent way in the workflow. It's native to everything else that's going on, whether it's a care gap action, whether it's a, a risk indicator, whatever the case may be, that once again, it doesn't require special effort. It's just there. And that's the whole premise. And, you know, that's one observation we've had about the, the, the last kind of, you know, let's say 10 years again of the industry is there was this explosion in the data availability um, in a very positive way, but it resulted in this kind of over appification and not for this, not for that, a program for this, pop out tool over here, blah, 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 blah. And, and even though the data was there and it was flowing, it actually created all this other distraction and work, despite the fact that things were connected. And what we're trying to do is say, listen, it's good that those platforms are there. But instead of having a discrete workflow and experience for each one, let's connect them as platforms and bring them into a cohesive design, really focus on the user experience of it and have it natively in the flow of care, just like any other piece of a clinician's day to day. So we're not adding to this existing heavy admin burden of chasing these things down. How extensive is the payer portion of this ecosystem and how quickly is it growing? Uh, within Athena, it's it's um, growing quite quickly. It's one of the fastest growing areas of our ecosystem. Uh, we now connect over 20 uh, health plans. Uh, we continue to add to that year on year. We are now doing uh, exchange uh, of data for about 90 million patients a year, which is pretty sizable. And some of these care gap and bi-directional exchanges, we're now covering true bi-directional communication in the workflow for over 3 million members, uh, which is, you know, scale to our, our businesses is, we think, pretty prominent. One of the things we've been doing is focusing on which plans and programs are available. So the past year or so, we've been focused really on the Medicare Advantage population. And this year, 2024 coming, we'll be adding more program availability, managed Medicaid programs, um, commercial programs, individual exchange programs to that data exchange. So we can really co cover much more of the panel um, the, we have in the past. So in terms of data, I know one challenging aspect of it for a lot of clinicians is the regulatory environment. And it's evolving rapidly and people don't get into medicine so that they can keep up with government regulations. People are busy. It's difficult to keep up with these things. What are the types of things that your teams are keeping an eye on as, as they impact the way data is flowing into and out of Athena One? And maybe we start with 21st Century Cures um, as an example of something that I know your team has been keeping a close eye on over time. Yeah. So if, if you're not familiar with 21st Century Cures, this is a 
piece of regulation that came from ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator, which is the main regulatory body for healthcare technology in the Department of Health and Human Services. It's, it's not CMS. It's a different agency entity under HHS. And what it says is that providers and technology providers, so actual healthcare delivery and uh, enables of technology providers have to have a certain level of openness and use certain technological standards to do so in their data. Now, when you think about this, this is, this is kind of a strange piece of regulation for a, a healthcare provider is you now have to be regulated as a health, as a technology platform, as much as you are a uh, healthcare delivery provider. So, you know, we think that's a little bit interesting uh, in terms of what we're asking providers to do. But our role as, as Athena is really to make this seamless in the background. So what happens today uh, in 21st century cures is a couple of things. One says you have to be open, so you can't do what is called information blocking. And that means uh, you have to permit people to access uh, data about patients, um, particularly for patient requests. And you have to do it through this thing called a FHIR API, which is a certain information exchange standard that's developed over the past couple of years, um, really past decade. And, and what we've done is made that default global functionality for all Athena One practices. So it's just there. And what we've actually been doing in the background for our clients is all these requests for app access and connecting in PHRs that are now regulatory obligations for practice, we're doing for them. So uh, today we've interacted with over 80 Firebase applications who have wanted to integrate in. And this ranges from you know, major commercial PHR companies to startups to even some patients who you know, have individual projects or are hobbyists in technology and want access. And so we've operationalized that behind the scenes for our practices. And we think that's a really important role. Once again, on the theme of supporting particularly group practice, small practice, you know, really has no business managing a technology platform as part of delivering care. We think it's a really critical obligation we have as Athena to deliver that in the background. So our clients are getting the power of an enterprise technology platform with leading APIs, which we do have in a way that's almost seamless to them. Um, so it's just happening if their patients want those apps and services, they're there, but the practice doesn't have to take special effort. Some listeners may also have heard about TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. How are we adhering to TEFCA requirements in Athena One? Sure. TEFCA is a, uh, another regulatory concept that basically creates a framework for national data exchange. Um, came about in the same as the mid-20-teens as, as 21st Century Cures. Um, and as, as part of uh, 21st Century Cures, I should say. And, and what TEFCA basically does is says, here, here are the rules for how this should work. Now, what's interesting is we've been doing national level open data exchange now for uh, well over a decade ourselves. We were a founding member of a national data sharing collaborative called Commonwealth. And what really that means is that TEFCA creates a new kind of standard and set, sets rules for this existing activity in the industry. And a couple of things change. The first thing that changes is the obligation of these networks to support each other. So TEFCA has this thing called QHINs, which are what they're calling that the networks actually facilitate this data exchange. And TEFCA says all the QHINs have to talk to each other. So if you're going to be in this national data sharing business, you have to be open to all the other networks. So there is not a limitation of data access as you do so. Um, so that's part one. And part two is TEFCA starts to speak to some of the use cases that are permitted uh, within TEFCA, meaning uh, uh, treatment as a use case versus patient access as a use case versus other research and public health use cases. 
So Tefka named six of those, and we'll implement them in a sequence that augment uh, what the national data sharing networks do today. And the last thing Tefka does is really create some specifications about how this is done um, in a framework for modifying or modernizing those specifications over time. So Athena is participating this by connecting to these QHIN entities. We already connect to the prior version of them, Care Quality, Commonwealth. And as those entities and others turn into QHINs in this new regulatory framework, we will then connect to those. In fact, we've already done some testing, uh, QHIN exchange testing as recently as this past December uh, to do so. And that will manifest in uh, Athena Clinicals in the same way you have patient record sharing today. So it's really just a new regulatory framework about an existing activity to Athena. Now, not all other EHRs do it the same way we do, but the shift for our clients will be pretty negligible in terms of the experience. What will happen is these new use cases will start to add to the types and mechanisms of exchange happening in those networks. And that's going to be the exciting part to see where that goes over the, over the next several years. Lastly, this has been a a lot in terms of how we're using data to enhance the both clinician and patient experience. Some of our listeners may be from larger organizations that are growing by adding locations, adding departments. Obviously, data plays a huge role in this type of growth. That can be a huge logistical part of that growth. So what functionality do we have to make that type of growth easier for those on the Athena One Network? Yeah. And and so this is this last piece of the regulation of this thing called Electronic Health Information Exchange, EHI. and so what, what the regulation has also done is required that practices and, and technology providers make EHI, which is a very broad definition. It's basically all the potentially relevant information about a patient and practice available in a structured way. And what we're, what we're doing is preparing for a world where practices who are growing, who are adding practices, combining, acquiring, um, can take advantage of this EHI structure as we improve our ability to import migrate and introduce that data into Athena. And so, for example, over the past year, we now have a process for doing that with CCDAs. That's cost-free to our practices. It just comes in uh, as part of our services. We're adding to that other structured data types. And we think that this world of structured data availability, plus our investment in being able to handle that, particularly for these value-based care arenas where you want consistency over the code sets, you want consistency over the quality measures in the historic venue. You don't want those to be an interruption when you transition EHRs, we're making sure we have the ability to do that. We've added uh, many data types and the ability to handle these types of data over the past couple of years in this import space, such that for growing practices as they acquire, they can take advantage of this new environment. So we've had a couple of nice uh, introductions of that capability in our imports roadmap, we call it, which is a little bit of a wonky term of the past 12, 12 months. And as we look ahead, we'll, we'll continue to do more of that space. So it's an exciting area for us. It ties to this regulatory environment and also the dynamics of value-based care where you need much more of that to be consistent over time as you transition EHRs. So it's a, it's a really important topic for, for growth-minded practices for sure. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for the time. Um, we appreciate you going through all these different ways that the data is coming in and out of charts and counters, influencing value-based care programs, influencing growth. Um, and we're excited to see what's coming in the future. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Here's what else you need to know. The fall 2023 release hit Athena One back in November. If you want to learn more about the features in the release, be sure to check out the fall 2023 release centers on the Success Community. Clinical administrators should be sure to check out the new options for requiring providers to complete the billing tab and or to document a diagnosis before closing the encounter, both of which can help your organization get paid faster with less back and forth between staff and the clinicians they support. 
The spring 2023 release is scheduled for March, and you can expect to hear from us in February about the features we have planned, including added automation to the way claims get created. If you're interested in learning more about clinical workflows in Athena One, check out our clinical coaching offerings. We offer provider coaching, clinical staff coaching, clinical practice coaching for administrators, and care and quality management coaching. It's all free. Visit the Success Community and search clinical coaching to learn more and drive better performance in Athena One. With over 350 partners across 62 capabilities and 60 specialties, the marketplace enables you to curate your Athena Health experience under one platform based on your specific business needs. Over 70% of Athena Health customers use one or more marketplace partner. Go to marketplace.athenahealth.com and filter by specialty or capability to find solutions that support your business, integrating seamlessly and powering the most open, scalable platform in healthcare. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to leave a rating or review and be sure to tell your colleagues to check us out as well. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can let us know what you think by email at podcast at athenahealth.com, especially if you have any topics you would like us to cover to better support the way you use Athena One. This podcast is for you, and we want to make sure it's as useful for busy clinicians as it can be. We at Athena Health are curing complexity to simplify the practice of care, and we'll talk to you again soon.